All right, good morning, ladies, and hello to those listening to the podcast. Um, I'm excited to walk through 1 Peter 4, 1 to 6 with you. Um, before we start, I just want to say I love a good home reno show. I love everything that goes into it. I love seeing the start, whether, you know, the bare bones of what they're working with or the disaster that they're starting with. Um, I love seeing the ups and downs that go into a reno. Thanking God I'm not in it. Um, <laughs> And yeah, just seeing how they tackle, you know, bumps in the road, you know, unforeseen um, things that come up in a house, like mold or structure issues, and just all the things that go into a renovation. And the best part is when you get to the end of the episode, because typically it went well, everything's finished, and the process of the renovation is done, and everything looks amazing. And the best part about a home run show is when they show you the before and the after next to each other. And you're all like, whoa, I'm going to do that. (laughs) And so in a sense, Peter is taking us through the renovation process for the believers he is writing to and to us. He has shown us where it all started. We were born again through the hearing of the gospel that is the life, death, resurrection, and ascension of Jesus, the Son of God. From there, he has told us of the promises that we have, which are imperishable, and how we are to live in light of being purchased by the blood of Christ. We are to be sober-minded. We are to love our brothers and sisters in Christ. We are to be living stones. We are to be submissive to different authorities like governors, employers, and our husband. In all these things, Peter moves on to tell us that we may be persecuted or incur suffering because of our faith in Jesus Christ. But he says in chapter 3, verse 14, to have no fear. Because the one that we follow, Jesus, also suffered, and he was victorious, and is the one victorious king who reigns over all authorities and angels and powers. We have no fear because our greatest enemies, sin and death, have been defeated once and for all. These believers, and to us as well, who believe in Jesus, have seen a bit of the renovation process of a Christian life. We have been shown what it looks like to live in exile as people waiting for our true home. And now in chapter 4, verse 1 to 6, Peter is going to hold the before picture up and say, this is going to be a temptation for you to return to. Not only is he going to list bodily pleasures that may be tempting his audience, but he's going to tell them the insults they will incur will be a temptation to leave the faith and to do what is easy, to have people like them, and it will be a temptation to not want to endure verbal suffering and to just go with the flow of what is considered normal in that time. Last week, we read and heard that we will be hated for being different. We will experience hate from those around us, not because we choose to believe in God. In the Greco-Roman world, and now, there were and are a lot of lowercase g gods. Us believing in God won't be the reason or the only reason that we receive hate from those around us. Us believing, or we will be hated because we choose righteous and pleasing lives that are honoring to God and different from the world. That means the way we act, speak, and live will be entirely different from those who don't love God. It will be because of our righteous conduct that we will endure suffering in this world. It will be because we don't do what is normal that we will suffer. It is because we do the will of God and not the will of man that we will receive hate from around us. But Peter shows us and promises us that it will all be worth it. So I will pray and then we'll read the word. Lord, I just thank you 
for being able to um, just go through your word this morning with these ladies here. Um, I pray that you will give us just hearts and ears to hear your word. Um, I pray that you would speak through me, Lord, and that you um, would be seen in this um, in this lesson, Lord. I pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen. So we're starting in chapter 4, verse 1. Since therefore Christ suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves with the same way of thinking. Whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin, so as to live for the rest of the time in the flesh no longer for human passions, but for the will of God. For the time that has passed suffices for doing what the Gentiles want to do, living in sensuality, passions, drunkenness, orgies, drinking parties, and lawless idolatry. With respect to this, they are surprised when, they, when you do not join them in the same flood of debauchery, and they malign you. But they will give account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. For this is why the gospel was preached even to those who are dead, that though judged in the flesh the way people are, they might live in the spirit the way God does. So, after just speaking about how Christ suffered to bring us to God, and how through his death and resurrection he healed all authority in heaven and on earth, Peter then tells us to arm ourselves with the same way of thinking. He begins the verse with, since therefore Christ suffered. So let's just add a couple things here between the word Christ and suffered. It says, since, well, let's just say, since therefore Christ, or Jesus, who was sinless, suffered the wrath of God meant for sinners. Since Jesus, who was perfect, suffered judgment by, the, by men to be condemned and put to death. Since Jesus, who was gentle, suffered beatings almost to the point of death. Since Jesus, who spoke to the outcasts, to women, children, and non-Jews, suffered mocking and was scorned. Since Jesus, who was kind, compassionate, a selfless person, was hanged and suffered on a cross. Since therefore Christ suffered unjustly for doing the will of God, think this way about your life. So Jesus didn't just suffer because he did what was good and was a good person. He suffered because he and the Father and the Spirit hated sin so much that the perfect sinless Son of God had to suffer to defeat sin. And it was the cost of our Savior's life. So Peter wants us to have the same Christ-like seriousness when it comes to sin. Peter is helping his readers and us to have our minds in the proper headspace for what he's about to tell us. He's saying that whoever is thinking this way will cease from sinning. Do you see it in verse 1? Since therefore Christ suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves with the same way of thinking. Think about how Jesus suffered and why he suffered. For, because, whoever has suffered in the flesh, that is, whoever chooses to stand with Christ and also suffer unjustly and also hates sin, has ceased from sin. Now, we as Christians know that we will never stop sinning until our death or when Jesus returns. So there are two ways that you can look at the word seized from sin. The first is an unbiblical point of view, which is once you put your faith in Jesus, you never sin again. That is, you never love anything more than God. You never have any idols in your heart. You never take the Lord's name in vain. You do zero work on the Sabbath. You do everything your parents tell you to do. You do not murder or hate anyone the slightest bit. You never commit adultery or think about another person sexually ever. And you never steal and you never lie. If at any point the slightest hint of these laws enter your mind, heart, or actions, you have sinned and therefore are not a child of God. 
That is an unbiblical view of seizing from sin. So to attack this unbiblical view, I'm going to use the Bible to show you how this view is not what Peter is saying. So if you want, you can turn with me to 1 John. It's just a couple pages over um, towards the end of the book. And we'll look at chapter 2. In verse 1, it says, My little children, I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. He is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. When we unwillingly sin and we repent, we know that Christ is our advocate and redeemer. Look a couple of verses before that in chapter 1, verse 9. It says, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar and his word is not in us. We are sinners and God knows that and his desire is for us to confess it daily. So you can turn back to 1 Peter. So the other way you can look at the word seized from sin is this way. And it's in our text. Since Christ suffered unjustly, I'm going to choose to not participate or be done with sin and be armed or ready my mind to suffer for choosing not to sin. To put more plainly, since Christ suffered unjustly, I'm going to choose to suffer unjustly in the flesh than to purposely do sinful acts. Since Christ suffered unjustly, I'm going to choose to suffer unjustly in the flesh than to purposely do sinful acts. So Matt and I, as I'm sure everyone here, were sad when we heard the news of what was happening in Ukraine. Every man who's between the ages of 18 and 60 are forced to go to war and defend their country. And as Matt and I were talking, we thought how scary it would be to be given a weapon and told to do your best to stay alive. Think of the abruptness they faced. There was no warning for them and no training. Think of that 18-year-old who never held a gun in his life and has to hold a battlefield position against military tanks and forces with no training. The words, arm yourselves, have a military connotation here in this text. It's a warning. As believers, we need to have an attitude that suffering is inevitable. It is part of the Christian life, and sometimes in Georgetown, suffering can feel distant. We can feel safe here. But Peter is saying, prepare our minds. Do you remember that language from verse or chapter 1? Arm yourselves for battles. And battles are typically not planned. They're usually, there's usually a surprise attack. And sometimes where James use spies, and these spies look and talk like locals. They have creeped in and are ready to destroy. Sin is subtle, it creeps in, and it has a friendly persuasion. Sisters of MABC, arm yourselves because sin wants to consume you. Prepare to suffer like Christ. Why? Because verse 2 says that you want to do the will of God and not the will of man. You no longer want to live for human passions, but the will of God. So what is the will of God? Well, Peter tells us what it isn't. But first he says that the time that we did the things that our human passions that the Gentiles do is, has sufficed. We have lived for our human passions at one point in verse 3. 
We did them in the past, and that was long enough. So what isn't the will of God? We see them in verse 3. They live for self-pleasure, specifically bodily pleasures. We might be quick to read this list and think, I don't do any of these things. But let's bring them into the 21st century, because again, in suburban Georgetown, there's probably not an orgy happening next to me tonight. But if you watched almost any movie or show that has been released in the last five years, the sensuality, drink, drunkenness, passions, and orgies might have been in our very houses. You may not have actively participated in any of these things, but watching people have intercourse is ungodly. So God created sex to happen between one man and one woman covenanted to each other. As soon as our eyes have seen other people have sex or even portray having sex, it is sensuality. The Bible talks about how it is a sin to uncover the nakedness of someone who we are not married to. So a quick example is if you think of Noah, his son Ham, he uncovered his father's nakedness and there was shame and curse brought to him. So there, um, there's a sense of shame that should be felt when we see these things because it's not how God designed it. So a lot of movies as well encourage and make being drunk or high as something to desire, as something that is fun and cool, as something that you should do because either it makes you more funny or confident or more relaxed, or because it's just normal. Everyone's doing it, so you should do it. But these things aren't just on our screens. It's also become the norm to talk about them. It's become the norm to talk about our sex life with our friends. It's become the norm to make crude jokes. It's become the norm, especially among teens and young adults, to drink and do drugs for fun or sport or for a way to escape. These things are not the will of God. They are the will of man. They are the passions of the flesh, as Peter mentioned before. So before we move on to the next verse, I think it should be said that when and if we do any of these things, or if we have participated in any of these things, there is forgiveness in Christ. Jesus suffered unjustly. He suffered because he hates sin, but he also suffered because he loves you. John 3.16 says that for God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. God loves his creation and his desire for his creation is to have a relationship with him and he wants the relationship with you. So there's no guilt or shame when we come to Jesus but forgiveness and cleansing. So in verse 4, Peter says that those who are for these things and do them willingly are surprised when we don't do these things with them. They're surprised when we, do, when we don't want to do what is considered normal in our culture. Everybody is doing it. Peter describes it as a flood of debauchery. It's a flood. It's all around. It's consuming. And they're surprised that we aren't consumed by it. You're a loser. How can you be so naive? You're living in a bubble. So they start to malign you and speak evil of you. They'll gossip about you to everyone you know and slander you. Why? Because you're not joining in the flood, of, the flood of debauchery. So you not joining in is looked at as a silent condemnation on what they are doing. They're offended that you don't want to do what they love to do. So let's just say Alyssa made me a cake. She took the time to make it. She thought about what she was going to do. And out of the goodness of her heart, she was like, I'm going to give this to Nareem. And I say, no, thank you. 
So you can kind of tell she might be offended. And one of the reasons why she would be offended is because she never would have thought I would refuse the cake. And two, she has seen me partake in the act of eating cake. And three, in her culture, it would just be polite to say, thank you, I accept your gift. And so my rejection of the cake is a rejection of her hospitality, her kindness, and of her. I have condemned what she thought was a good idea. And in our sin nature, when we are upset, we want other people to be upset with us. So we tell people, and they sympathize and join in in the maligning. So when you choose not to join in with the crowd, news will spread. People will know, and they will be surprised. They will be offended, and they will malign, ridicule, and mock you because of it. And it's going to be hard. Life will feel hard when this happens, and we will feel trapped. We'll find it hard to go to work because our coworkers don't like us. We'll find it hard to leave our house because our neighbors are badgering us. Or even worse, it'll be hard for our kids because they become a target of bullying at school for the way we choose to live. We're going to be tempted to want people to like us, to say nice things about us. We're going to want people to affirm what we are doing, and so it'll be tempting to do what is considered normal to be liked. Ladies, just remember that this is not our home. Our true home is everlasting and it's coming soon. So we need to arm ourselves with the proper thinking to be able to endure the suffering. In the book, Pilgrim's Progress, it tells us of the story of a person named Christian who was a believer and the ups and downs of a Christian life. It's an allegorical story, and at one point, Christian and his friend Faithful arrive in a town called Vanity Fair, and they're on their way to the celestial city. Vanity Fair is a town of all things vain, but all things that are alluring and appealing to the flesh. Like us, they were warned that the way to go to the celestial city was to go through Vanity Fair. So I'm just going to read some stuff from that book when they're in Vanity Fair. And I think you'll find some similarities to our time now. So here's what it says about Vanity Fair. Finally, Beelzebub, Apollyon, and Legion, with their laborers, set up this fair to provide every kind of entertainment for travelers and to sell all types of merchandise all year long. And still at the fair is sold such merchandise as fine houses, lands, stocks, bonds, false security, gay clothing, jewelry, expensive cosmetics, gold and silver, antiques, pearls, precious stones, fame, fortunes, reputations, virtue, honor, popularity, positions, phony titles, phony titles, counterfeit degrees, contests, chances, games, votes, elections, schemes, Tricks, comics, beauty queens, sex appeal, prostitutes, human lives, and souls of man. There's also taverns, nightclubs, roadhouses, seductive shows, popular casinos, culture societies, fashionable churches, and so on. And then the author goes on to talk about how Jesus responded and how he acted when he went through this fair. It says, but the prince did not care for any of the merchandise, and he left the town without spending a penny for any of Beelzebub's goods. And then we get to how Christian and Faithful are seen when they go through this fair. It says, now as soon as Christian and Faithful entered the fair, they created a sensation, not only in the fair, but throughout the town. First, their dress was so different from the people of the place that everyone gazed at them. Some said they were cranks, 
Some called them outlandish. Others said they were there to create trouble. Second, their speech was different. Few could understand what they said, for naturally they spoke the language of Canaan, while those who kept the fair were men of this world. From one end of the fair to the other, they seemed like barbarians. Third, these pilgrims showed no interest in their goods, and this worried the people of the fair most. They were surprised that they didn't want to do or act like them. Christian and faithful did not even care to see them, and when they were asked to buy, they would stop up their ears and say, Turn away my eyes from beholding vanity, looking upward as if they belonged to another country. One who had already heard of the men, observing their peculiar behavior, mockingly said to them, What will you buy? Then they fastened their eyes upon him and said, We will buy the truth. At this, an occasion was taken to persecute them. Finally, the haters of the pilgrims created a mob and such commotion that all order was destroyed. So the people at Vanity Fair were surprised that Christian and Faithful didn't want to buy what they thought was good. They began to persecute them, and later on, they sentenced them both to death. We will be hated when we choose not to sin. Ladies, what are we going to buy? We, just, we should desire to buy the truth and not the things of this world. And so then we move on to verse 5. It says that Peter holds up, or we see that Peter holds up a before and after picture and say, it's ridiculous to want this. And why is it ridiculous? Because the judgment that they are laying into you, it's not going to be the final word spoken about you. Peter says God is going to judge everybody, the living and the dead. God is going to, God is going to judge the sin of this world, and it will be either judged on the cross of Christ or in the fiery lake of hell. Don't give in for century believers. Don't give in 21st century Christians. Don't go with the flow. God is going to judge and he is ready. Now this shouldn't cause us to be vindictive, but this should give us hope and strength to carry on in this life and to still be able to love unbelievers because we were once like them. We were ransomed from our futile ways and this should cause us to pray for unbelievers we also live in a time where we do desire justice because our world is fallen. And there's nothing wrong with that. Our God is a God who desires justice. Um, so we should be praying, come Lord Jesus. So verse 6 can seem a little confusing, but if you look at verse 5, Peter's talking about people who are physically living and physically dead. So when it says that the gospel was preached even to those who are dead, Peter is saying that dead are people who, had, who have heard the gospel before they died, not people who are spiritually dead. Also, Peter isn't saying the gospel is preached to dead unbelievers because then his call for believers to arm themselves to be ready to suffer for the sake of Christ would be pointless if there is a second chance to repent after we die. So a lot of scholars would agree that Peter is referring to believers who have died. At that time, and even now, unbelievers view death of believers as proof that, hey, everyone dies, so let's just enjoy life now. So this could have been really hard for believers to hear, and Peter is encouraging them that, yes, believers still taste death, but unlike unbelievers, we and believers will live in the Spirit of God. So look with me to chapter 3, verse 18. Peter is using the same language here. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, 
here it is, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit. Jesus died, but God raised him from the dead, and he is now alive. Sisters, be encouraged. Death has no sting over us. There is no condemnation for us who are in Christ. We will live with God for all of eternity. This is our promise, our inheritance, and do not throw it away for the approval of man, but endure unjust suffering for the approval of the Father. Ladies, let's stand firm when we face hostility for not going with the flow of society. We're going to be tempted by what is normal, or we may even be tempted to find approval from man, but we have found favor in the sight of God. This is worth so much more than praises from unbelievers. In fact, the favor from God is worth suffering unjustly because we have a great inheritance waiting for us. Let's arm ourselves with the way we think and how we think of how Christ suffered and why he suffered so that we can stand firm when we are unjustly persecuted, knowing that our Savior is the judge and he's ready for judgment. Let's pray. Lord, we live in a time right now where um, even during the first century, our society and our culture is tempting for us to follow and to um, we desire to fit in we desire for people to like us but i pray that you would help us to stand firm and to arm our minds with the thought of christ and his suffering and how this home is not our home but we are exiles here i pray that you would give us um, just strength to endure unjust suffering lord and that we would arm ourselves as well with the hope that we have that you will come to judge, Lord, and that you will also come to save those who you have chosen. And so we thank you for these things, Lord, and we pray that you would just be, us, be with us now as we um, discuss the text even more. I pray it's all in Jesus' name. Amen.